Song of Solomon, so open up there to uh, chapter 3, which is where we'll find ourselves tonight. We've been uh, enjoying, at least I hope the married uh, people, I've, here's, here's a chance to get some uh, uh, brownie points, gentlemen. Uh, do you remember and do you delight in the memories of your wedding day? Yeah. Yeah. All right, good luck. You guys, you have no hope. I can't help you at all if you don't. That was a brownie point on a platter. Uh, ladies, do you remember your wedding day? All right, cool. There we go. Uh, 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 today we're getting to the wedding scene. This is the, the part of the book where we've gone through the introductory love poems of the, the first chapter in a bit, and then uh, uh, the second chapter was largely about the, 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 the love flowing back and forth, but with restraint, that there was the struggle of being pre-married and not able to fully consummate that love with, with all that that means. And, uh, um, uh, and today we get to the enjoyment of the, the, the marriage ceremony, marriages, weddings, are the most exciting part of most people's lives. Many people, most people will say, uh, usually men will be smart enough to say, that it is one of the best days or the best day of their entire life. If you are unmarried and looking forward to marriage, of course, you rightly look forward to the wedding day because of all of its, its joy. One of the, the, the pieces of advice that I got when we were uh, engaged and just about to get married and, and people often give to people on their wedding day is make sure you take certain times of the day to intend intentionally take in what's going on because it's a day that has so much emotion, so much romance, so much excitement that it just flies by and, uh, and you miss it and you forget it very easily. So uh, we're, we're in that section tonight where the, the king and his bride meet together in the beautiful, glorious chapel. The, the last two sections that we've gone through have ended with that refrain, do not awaken love until it desires. It, it was saying, be careful because love, love is like fire. It longs to consume, and it will. If, it's, if you're not careful with it, it will consume. And so marriage is like the fireplace or the hearth that love is just given full permission to fully burn in a blazing furnace as hot and as big and as often as you want. That is great. But outside of the fireplace, it has to be treated carefully, you know, like, a, like somebody carrying a, a candle through a large dry grain field. You have to be careful with it before marriage because though it's good to alight it and slowly walk towards a, a marriage with care, it can lead to uh, a sin and all sorts of uh, stained consciences for those who are not careful. Tonight, the time is right. Tonight, she's actually going to say very openly, awaken my love, right? That thing which I was warning you, be careful with it uh, before marriage. Now she's going to sing, awaken it, bring it fully. And one of the last lines of our passage tonight at the beginning of chapter 5 is, eat, drink, and be drunk with love. The literal translation is be intoxicated with lovemaking. But it sort of has the, the broader application of love each other so much that you are, you are just drunk with love. Last week we talked about the dangers of being sick with love. When you so long to be with somebody and you can't have them fully yet and you have to live different places and you don't see each other as often as you would and you have to call and email and fax for you oldies and, and write letters and whatever, you know, Morse code to your, to your darling. You, you always want to be closer than you can be uh, and, and, there's, and it's rich with 
times of temptation and infatuation and bad decision-making when you're sick with love, but being drunk with love is the image of drinking your fill to full joy with exuberance. Have all that you want. You'll never be hungover. This is the day of the covenant union in marriage. So look, look at chapter 3, verse 6. We ended last week with verse 5, and then verse 6 starts out with the arrival and the procession at the ceremony. So I'm going to just read as we, uh, as we go, instead of reading all in one chunk, I'm just going to read as we go and, and make comments in passing. So it starts out, what is that coming up from the wilderness like columns of smoke perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all the fragrant powders of a merchant? Behold, it is the couch of Solomon. Around it are 60 men, some of the mighty men of Israel. All of them are wearing swords and expert in war, each with his sword at his thigh against terror by night. So this is the scene. There's a little bit of uh, linguistic uh, uh, ambiguity as to whether he's the one standing here talking about her arriving in a couch that he's built, or whether it's about everybody watching as the king arrives in his own couch. And it's, it's a little bit harder to say. I've sort of fallen on the side that it seems like it's him, or at least I like the scene, that it's him at the altar standing there in the royal wedding on top of the mountain in the beautiful breeze, and then he can see his car bringing his beautiful bride to him. So this is the scene. He's standing there. Now it says that, it, uh, that he is seeing it come up from the wilderness, like columns of smoke. So, so first part of it is that they're on the mountaintop. Remember, this is royal wedding. They're in Jerusalem. Imagine you've been invited to a, a location wedding. It's up a big mountain drive. It took an hour and a half to get there. The breeze is cool. Maybe it's at a winery or a whiskey distillery or some beautiful sort of uh, location. The sun's sort of peeking up over the, uh, uh, dropping down, I mean, over the mountains. And he can see her coming in the wedding car, right? He's, he's, rent, he's built actually, we're going to see, his own wedding car, and she's being brought in it, and he can see her, and it's pictured as her coming up out of the wilderness to the mountaintop. Not only is this locational, but in the poetic uh, uh, vibe of Song of Solomon's, it's also got a deeper meaning, that, that singleness has been, and being without one another, has constantly been framed by uh, the writer of this book as a wilderness, and starvation, and struggle, and dying. Amen? Any singles? Amen? That is correct. That's what singleness is like when you're Solomon or when you're the Shulamite woman and you want to be together. Not being able to be together, he said, was like she was a dove stuck up in the rocks of the mountain and she, he couldn't get to her. Or, or it's like she's out on a, we're going to see later, out in the peaks of other mountains and he, he can't traverse his way to her. They're, they're apart and the wedding day is when the, the, the emotional, relational wilderness is left behind and they finally come together in the beautiful garden of love. We see that he can smell her before he can even see her. While his car is just this tiny little uh, 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 blip on the horizon, he can already smell her fragrances. That's sort of the, the picture here. He says, what is that down there that I can hardly see, 
perfumed with myrrh and frankincense and all the fragrant powders of a merchant. So she's, she's blown the budget. 50% of it was spent on oils and perfumes and incenses. And she's feeling and smelling wonderful and beautiful. And he can smell it. Uh, these are all the ones that he lists are all sort of royal, romantic smells. And science has uh, uh, proven that uh, 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 the, the olfactory sense, which is your nose and smell, Olfactory sense is that sense of the human body which is most closely related to memories and nostalgia, right? If you're a brain scientist, I don't want to hear if I'm wrong. That's what I read. And so one of the pieces of advice that me and my wife like to give to people is before your wedding or before you're married, uh, buy for, this is for the gal and she can buy something she likes for the husband, but buy a, a perfume that is Probably a bit more expensive. You're not going to wear every day, but nice, particular smell. You know, this uh, a precise kind of favorite scent. And then use it on the wedding day and then save it for days like anniversary and obviously the honeymoon, but anniversaries, maybe special birthdays or important dates. Because what that does, us, we're just like dogs with a whistle. We are, One day when we were early married, we were going on a date and I said to Joy Mike, I said something about, you know, I'm just I'm remembering our honeymoon. You remember where we went then? She goes, yeah, I'm wearing, I'm wearing the perfume. I say, yeah, you're, you're not thinking about it. You're just a dog that, you know, listened and saw, and that, and it, but it brings it up. And that's, that, that's one of the things that we see throughout Scripture this, and Song of Solomon is this, like, fixation on the beauty of smell. Well, it's real. It's true. That's how God has designed us. That This is why sometimes you'll go into, like, hospitals have distinct smells, or, or airports. You walk in, and you, you already feel like you're on an international uh, holiday. Or things like maybe your grandparents' uh, soap, or you smell it, and you get all these childhood uh, memories of being back at their house, or, or things like that. The, the, the sense of smell is able to, to race somebody's mind back into all of these emotional memories and nostalgia, and so that's handy with perfumes. Bring back and awaken the love of the day of the wedding. And we see here that she is surrounded by, by groomsmen, the security detail. All around this couch, this couch is, a, is like a royal seat that's being carried by men up the mountain all the way to the wedding ceremony. And he can see, and it's surrounded, it says, by 60 uh, security men with, with, with glocks strapped onto their, onto their hips and they're, they're in tuxedos and they're, they're the, 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 the secret service for the safety of the bride. Uh, it's probably hyperbole. Uh, David the king had 30 men in his mighty men security detail. It's unlikely that Solomon would have 60. It's kind of overkill, but that's the hyperbole of the, of the poem. She's surrounded with his safety and his riches. He is using everything everything that he has to, to, to bless her, to protect her, and to secure her for his love and his future together. That is historically kind of the point of a little bit less relevant today when there's less kidnappings on wedding days. But uh, one of the historical sort of basis of groomsmen, part of their job was to get the bride and the gals to the wedding safely. Uh, and here we see the same sort of thing happening. And while well, they have all their swords and they're making sure that they get to the husband who is waiting patiently at the altar. In uh, verse 9 and 10, we see a little bit more of the details of this, uh, of this carriage or this couch. So look at verse 9. King Solomon made himself a carriage from the wood 
of Lebanon. He made its posts of silver, its back of gold, its seat of purple, its interior was inlaid with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. So this is, this is sort of the scene that with his wedding day coming up, he spared no expense. And he went and built, or had his men build a, a beautiful carriage that then she used to be carried to the wedding day. And this is kind of modern day, a, a, a gentleman sort of DIYing back to its factory uh, original settings and building a Mustang, right? A 67 Mustang and putting it all together. And then he got the bridesmaids over and said, all right, make it pretty. And so they put on the banner and the ribbon and the, and the married sign on the back and maybe the cans and flowers on the inside. And they put on the, the purple uh, drapes and cushions on the inside to make it a really marriage wedding themed car. And that's what she is driving or being driven into the wedding. He, he spared no expense to give all that he has for the love and the safety and the enjoyment of his beautiful bride whom he loves. And then verse 11 sort of turns and speaks of the man. Maybe it's that the, wife, the bride arrives at the wedding and she gets out and she says to her bridesmaids, wow, look at him, he looks amazing. Or maybe it's a, a general call to everybody because he's the king, but they say, get a load of this guy. Look at hunky Solomon. They say, go out, O daughters of Jerusalem, go and look. Go and look upon King Solomon with the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, on the day of the gladness of his heart. So his mum was, you know, as the family was getting ready for the wedding that day, she was the one who put on the crown, smiled for the photos, and here he is ready, looking his best, smelling his grandest. He shaved in all the right areas. He put on perfume. He took a shower, wow, and he's ready for the beautiful wedding with his uh, delightful bride. One of the, the themes that actually some circles of Orthodox Jews still do this as a practice and a tradition is that the husband and the wife on the wedding day will wear some kind of headpiece that they call crowns, or, or they are treated in the, in the seven-day feast that follows the wedding. They're treated like royalty intentionally. This is, this is one of the biblical themes that we see come through, is that at every good wedding, in every good marriage love, there is, there is themes of royalty. No, not genuine royalty. We're all poor and not royals, but the themes of royalty. This is where the gold and the purple and the, and the fine jewelry and those sorts of things come from. But, but it's the idea that every husband is a little king and every bride is a little queen over their own little kingdom or their future life together. It's, it's what uh, we use in poetry, appropriate hyperbole. You know that hyperbole is just overstating something ridiculously. We say it to the kids, I've told you a million times, right? Maybe a thousand, but we haven't genuinely said it a million. But well, we use hyperbole in, in love all the time, but it's appropriate. It's appropriate for a husband to speak of his wife as the queen, for her to echo back to him uh, 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 feelings of him being the king. This is how they feel about each other in this royal love. And we see another thing come through here is just this, this outright extravagance. This extravagance that is inappropriate on other days of our life to spend money or time on certain things, but on a wedding day become extremely fitting. Now, this is not a pastoral command to be irresponsible, splurge, or spend above your means. However, it is an encouragement to be willing to spend a little bit of money more than you would normally do on things like dresses and jewelries and food and parties. You don't do it every day, right? God willing, you will have one wedding. 
right? God willing, one wedding. It is right and biblical to make it a sort of climax event with, with money spent on it that you would not usually spend, with effort put into it that you would not usually put into other dinners. So not all of us will have the same resources to money and uh, things like that, but where we get lots of friends to help out, it's where we get a, a, a people to try and bring things and donate and do whatever we can to have as fun a party and an exuberant and an excellent majestic celebration as we can because there are few things in life as delightful as marriage. I knew a guy once, he's a pastor, and he he told me the story of somebody in his congregation who was gifted as a wedding gift about a month before their their wedding. Uh, They they were struggling with with money a little bit, and there's going to be a small wedding and all this. And a couple of months before the wedding, they were gifted with $25,000 cash. Wow, Um, that is extremely a, a, a blessing, right? That would knock the wind out of you. And here's what this guy said to his pastor. He goes, yeah, obviously God wants me to give it to missions. (laughs) To which the appropriate response was, or you throw a party for your queen that she'll never forget because you love her. Right? Here's where the pietism rocks in. That wasn't even his money. If he transferred that to missions... He has given no money to missions. Do you see that? That was, that was cheaping out on getting the giving points from somebody else's money. It was given him precisely for the wedding. <laughs> so it would not have been honest or at all Christian to the gang go and donate that money out of hand. He could have been, uh, convinced the person not to give him the money. But he was the rightful husband, husband mindset to do. Look at all of this available spending that I can put towards a celebratory, fun, exciting wedding. Do we need to be careful? Of course. Can money easily be spent in ridiculous ways and silly things? Yes. Here's the test. You want to be able to provide and put on an event that honors your family, that praises God, and that glorifies the true glory of marriage. So it's not that you're spending $10,000 on the favorite dress for you or $5,000 on silver grills or silly things like that, but you're putting into the wedding what you can to show that this really is a once-off event, this really is the most beautiful, gorgeous, wonderful treasure of a woman that you could ever imagine. God has given her to you, and it is your job today to celebrate in her, in God, in the family that made this possible, and the gift of marriage. So there is an allowance in Scripture's exuberance There is an allowance for and a special extravagance in celebrating marriage that is not usually appropriate. The Jews would do a, and often this is in different cultures, they would do like a seven-day feast for the celebration of marriage. And Jesus didn't think that was extravagant. Jesus didn't think that was sinful. He thought that was appropriate. He went to one of those, and halfway through, as they ran out of wine, he didn't say, you're so worldly, you want to have a party, you're trying to celebrate. He gave them heaven's finest vintage. His his first miracle publicly was for a wedding. So this is a good part. This is a good thing to be on our mind for wedding days. It is a day of joy. I'll say this also. Look at the last line of chapter 3. The day of the gladness of his heart. 
There is a, a gladness that comes over people at weddings. And in future weeks, we're going to look at how to restore and reestablish covenantal uh, romantic love in marriage when it has dwindled, which is what we see in later chapters of the song. But at this moment, we see a, a, a true and full joy and exuberance at a wedding. I, I'll say this. I, I think the way that you feel at weddings says a lot about you. There is really no earthly reason, unless it's an unbiblical marriage, there really is no earthly reason to come to weddings with a sense of bitterness and anger. There's just none. Unless it's a sinful Covenantal, uh, non-covenantal, a sinful joining. That, that is to say, obviously, some of us will have hurts from either tragedy or abuse in the past around marriage. That, that's, that's one thing. Uh, but other people will say, I've known people who just, they just, they're just not a marriage, but they just don't like marriage. It's just really not for them. They don't like all of the fake happiness and the exuberance and all of this. No, they're bitter about something. They don't like God's institution of marriage or they're ladies that don't like the idea of joining to a man or they're a man that don't like the idea of being uh, uh, bound to a single woman in monogamy for the rest of their life. Often, often uh, 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 it's passed off as personality, but, but it's not. It's not. It's, a, it's an inability to see that marriage is one of God's highest blessings in life. For some people, there's a lot of jealousy because you wish that you could afford what they had done at your wedding. That needs to be repented of. Some people who hate weddings, it's because there's an envy because you're still waiting or you weren't able to get married as quickly. And, and there may be valid elements that you are longing for blessing like they were longing to be together in the Song of Solomons. But we are called in Scripture to rejoice with those who rejoice. And this doesn't mean that no one will have struggles or emotional wounds in the background. But what it does mean is know your heart and know why. To try and know yourself well enough to understand why am I unable to obey Scripture's command to rejoice with those who are rejoicing. Why am I bitter? Why do I like pointing out her flaws? Why do I think this is all phony? Why do I keep on saying that? There's something probably lying underneath. And this especially goes for the bride and the groom. On your wedding day, a thousand things can go wrong. And a hundred things do go wrong. Some of the funniest videos on the internet are just things going horribly wrong at weddings. Hilarious. You're maybe more holy than me. It's hilarious when these things go wrong. A fainting husband or, or best man or, or the, uh, the, the kid dropping the rings into the river. So funny. It's tremendous. A hundred things will go wrong with your wedding. And it will only get to you if a perfect day instead of loving your partner, is really the first thing in your heart. I, I, on the, I, I said I wasn't going to tell me and Joy stories. So again, a friend of mine was getting married, and on the setup day, it was a big DIY wedding in a hall that was rented. All family and friends were doing everything. No, no hiring of teams or, or things like that. There wasn't the money for that. And, and there was this big master dream of how the lights were going to sit and how the, the seats were going to sit and how everything was going to go. And a bunch of it, as goes with a DIY wedding, a bunch of it wasn't working. It had to be changed, and the whole vision sort of shifted. And, and I remember uh, my friend on the day before and the day of the wedding kept saying to his, his, his bride, like, oh, I'm sorry, this didn't work. Can I do anything? You know, I'll, I'll jump to me and my 60 security detail. We'll fix something. And she just kept on saying, Joy just kept on saying, uh, uh, I don't care. I don't care. I'm with you. This is the only thing this day is about, being with you and praising God. And that hit deep. That hit deep because a hundred things can go. I remember Joy was coming down the aisle and she had mud 
all over her white shoes because we were in a field. Also didn't have to pay for that. In a field, and it had rained the day before, and she was just walking ankle deep in mud up to the altar. Didn't care at all. Did not care at all. That's the sort of thing. I think that the gift of marriage, the, in the gift of marriage, the delight is each other. It's not the social media posts. It's not being able to have the perfectly Instagrammable marriage. It's the fact that at the end of the day, however this goes, we've covenanted together. You are mine forever. That is everything that I want. So we've gone from this scene of of him seeing her. He sets eyes on her. She's pulled up in the Mustang. She's got out. She said, wow, ladies, look, he looks great. She walks down the aisle. And then it's sort of from chapter four onwards. Look at verse one. He starts talking about her beauty. Now this, to me, this happens all day long. This is, he's first laid eyes on her, and then from between him seeing her at the end of the aisle, and then uh, uh, saying the vows, and singing the songs, and listening to the sermon, and signing the registry, and then going back to the party, and all of that, for a man, it is all a blur. He remembers none of it, because zero of it matters. The only thing he could, everything else is a blur, the one thing in focus is his beautiful bride. He will not remember what you say to him that day. He won't care about the toaster that you got him or the nice card that you wrote or the music playing. The one thing on a husband's mind is his wonderful, beautiful bride that he gets to call his wife now. So while the pastor is rambling on some random sermon from the Bible, this human male is just looking at his bride. And here's what's going through his head. He says, behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. The dove is, it's hard to catch. It's, it's sort of elusive. And we said earlier, she was like a dove far away. And sort of the poetic repetition here is saying, now your eyes are like doves, but the only thing separating us is the veil. You're a lot closer now. You're, you're beautiful. I can see you uh, more intimately now. He goes on. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Not at all romantic, we think. Uh, your hair is like wild fauna. Uh, ju- the, the goats, goat's hair, babe. Oily, curly, <laughs> messy, wild on the mountain. Here's what he's saying. When the goats, which were in, in her portion of the, the world, they were dark goats. And if you've ever seen maybe videos, maybe you've been on a farm, you see flocks of sheep or goat, they just look like one mass moving through the, the field and on the mountains together. And in these hills that he's talking about, uh, it would be that the goats would rush down these hills in just one big black mass like waterfalls. And he's saying, she's got this dark hair. He's saying, that's what it's like. I'm looking at you and your head is this beautiful field mountain, this hill, and down over each of your shoulders is rushing and running this beautiful, shining, black goat's hair. Again, you can't, it doesn't sound romantic, no matter where you say it. Leave goats out of all compliments on your wedding, gentlemen. It does not make for a good vow. But that's what he's saying. They're leaping down the slopes of Gilead. He goes to her teeth. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes that have come up from the washing, all of which bear twins. He's saying, your teeth are white. This is good. She has flossed and brushed her teeth. It's a good thing. White teeth. And and he's saying that they're they're ewes, so they're white sheep, but even more so, they've been freshly shorn, not even dirty, uh, dirty wool. It's fresh white and they've been cleaned. So you've got these dazzling white teeth, and he says it, they each have their twins. 
So, so for you, a female sheep to have twins, especially in this time of the world before genetic tweaking of animals, is extremely rare and, and, and a statement of absolute fertility. So he's saying to her, you, you remind me of fertile, beautiful sheep. Not one of them is missing, he says, right? So she's not, she's not, she's not a Collingwood supporter. She doesn't drive a, a, a Holden. She has all of her teeth. They're all inside. She doesn't even have a fake one glued in that morning. She's got real teeth. That's very pretty, okay? He likes that. That's worth, that's worth noting. He's speaking her language, remember, because she's a country gal. She grew up on the farm. She worked in all the fields, and he's using country analogies to speak of her overwhelming beauty. He says in verse 3, your lips are like a scarlet thread. She's wearing lipstick. She's got this dark lipstick behind the veil, and the contrast is very clear. The red behind the, the white drop veil over her face. Scarlet is a color in, in the Bible of life and love and, and er, erotic themes. He's saying, your, your lips are like this beautiful scarlet thread. Your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate. So she's got, I checked with my wife, this is called blush, I'm pretty sure, when they put red on the cheeks. I don't know the science, but guys like that, we just do. And so she's got these red cheeks behind, and he can see that too through the white veil, these high contrast colors behind your veil, he says, verse 3. Look at verse 4. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built in rows of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. He's saying there's this, there's this strong tower that, that my father the king built, and the warriors hang their shields on it. And what he's saying is, we saw this uh, uh, earlier as well, she's got a big long neck. She's got this confident sort of strong pose, this military language seems to suggest. She's not slumped over. She's got good posture. She's got like seven extra cervical spine vertebrae. She's got a big long neck. He likes it. And he says, that's great because the soldiers come and hang their shields on the wall. And, and the, chapter 1, verse 10 and 11, we get the themes that he was making and building a, a, a necklaces for her on the wedding day. So here she is. She's got a big long neck. And he says, that's great. Look at all of the, shield, the, the jewels that are hanging off your neck, all of the, the beautiful jewelry. Wives, hint, he may get you a gift that you don't love, but when you wear something that he got, you never have to wear it again. You wear it once, he remembers that for the rest of his life. So he, you may not be a green gal, or you might not like that certain stone or that jewelry. Just wear it once on the next date. He will never notice if you never wear it again. But wear the gifts that he gives you. That's my application. It's right there in the text. I'm sure you can all see it. Uh, moving on. Verse 5, your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that graze among the lilies. Do I need to recap last week? This is not Moses and Aaron. This is not the old covenant and the new covenant. This is not loving your neighbor and loving God. This is her chest. And he said, again, we read this. He goes, why is he listing two small, hairy animals when speaking of her torso and shape and as Westerners, we say, I don't know. He, this is, he has no clue what he's doing. But he does. He actually does. Would you believe it? This is, uh, 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 gazelles are graceful and they bounce and dance and the fawns are rare to see. They're sort of hidden away and very tender. Uh, again, there's themes of fertility here. He's drawing on nature to say, you look beautiful. You look amazing. I cannot wait <clears throat> Let's move on. He says in verse 6, Until the day breeze, 
and the shadows flee, I will go away to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. There's a very funny play on words here. He's saying, uh, uh, the day has come. The time is right. The, the time is here. It's, it's, love, it's love time. We, we, everything is good. We're supposed to be together. It's right that I adore your beauty. There's no challenges of temptation anymore. Every urge that I feel towards my bride's body is good and God-given and should be delighted in. And so he says, so now the, the day has breathed. The, the light is up. It is time for our love to awaken. And he says... I will go and mountaineer the mountains where myrrh is. And then you remember back from the, the first section where the wife says that she puts her perfume of myrrh and other things in a little satchel in between her breasts. And here he's saying, I'm going to go to the mountain of myrrh and climb them. Do I need to keep on painting the picture? He's, he's saying, I've, I've found the mountains I'm going to camp out at tonight. This is my location. Set up camp. This is the, I love her, and tonight is going to be wonderful. Moving on. Verse 7. He says, you are altogether beautiful. He's listed seven, and in Hebrew, remember, seven, the picture of fullness. He's listed seven body parts of her that he loves and adores, and he caps it off with, you are altogether beautiful. You are, there is no flaw in you. He's not being critical. He's not listing things he wished was different. He is in love with her as a husband ought to be. He says, come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Depart from the peaks of Amana, from the peak of Senea and Hermon, from the dens of lions, from the mountain of leopards. You have captivated my heart. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, it feels like you've been so far away, unattainable, separated from me. I, I didn't know who you were, and then I met you. We were in love. We were getting to know one another, but it still felt like we were separated. But now, the time is right. Come with me. This is, I think by now, the blur of the day has, has sort of mostly passed, and he's at the reception. And they're doing the first dance, and he's just whispering in her ear and saying, let's get out of here. You have stolen my heart. Let's leave these jokers. They can dance. They can enjoy the wine. Let's not waste the honeymoon suite that is currently waiting for us. Let's go and be together, my bride. You have captivated my heart, he says. You've stolen my heart. In the West, we think of heart as the feelings. In the Hebrew, the, the heart is the seat of the thoughts. The, the gut was the, was the seat of the feelings for them. He's saying, I am crazy about you. I don't even know how to think straight. You've stolen, I'm like a headless chook. I have lost all of my logic. You drive me crazy. Then this really romantic line, my sister. Oh, he's from Tasmania. This is weird. There we go. In ancient Near Eastern poetry, sister is the language of deep friendship and companionship. This is, it's non-sexual, it's not really romantic in itself, but it does speak to the friendship and really the closest relationship that a man and woman can know outside of marriage. He says, my sister, my bride. What this is speaking to is the fact that, you know, in our day we need to hear this because sex and companionship are just entirely divorced from one another and people want to meet each other for the first night and engage in all sorts of bodily actions or people expect to be able to just fix their marriage with, with lots of physical intimacy without what is the bedrock of that, biblically and scripturally, that there is companionship and there is an equal love back and forth and there is a, 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 a camaraderie and a friendship and a delight in one another's souls before there is a delight in one another's 
bodies. That there is a, a friendship that undergirds the marriage, and that's what makes a sexual romance so powerful in the first place. He says, our, uh, 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 in this marriage, we have a covenantal union. When he's calling her my, my sister, we're, we're one in spirit, we're close, we're friends, then my bride, he, he's building. Marriage is, biblically, marriage is a covenantal union. In covenant, we swear ourselves to another person, and there is, there's censures, there's, there's consequences, there's curses if we ever break that. That's what Jesus said. He says, you know, basically, woe on you if you break what God has joined together. So, so in marriage, there's this covenantal union where everything that's his becomes hers. Everything that is hers becomes his. Everything he is personally belongs to her. Everything she is personally belongs to him. Marriage is a covenant. Therefore, the wedding is a covenantal union and celebration. There's, there's, there's distinct things. There's sex, marriage, and wedding. When you confuse them or you have one without the other, they all break down. A wedding is not truly a joyful biblical wedding if its purpose and its aim is not a lifelong committed covenant. So people want this big romantic day, this fairy tale day where she gets to be the Disney princess and she hasn't done a much thinking about what the life is going to look like and what commitment means. It's not a true good biblical wedding. Uh, uh, great weddings and great uh, marriages without sex are none of the sort. Sex comes in, and as we frame this properly, sex is a covenantal, we could use this language, a covenantal sacrament, in the sense that it is a sign and a seal of everything that is in the covenantal agreement. So, so marriage is a covenantal bond. The, the wedding is a covenantal celebration when, the, when, it, when there is union. And the, the sex is simply the finalizing, the, the culminating, or the, tickful, the, the technical word, the consummation, the finalization, the consummation of the covenantal agreements. Thinking this way for married people and for singles, for young and for people who've been married for a long time, will be helpful in our approach to sexual intimacy. That sex is not ever free and easy. It always carries with it, by God's design, a, a harshness when it is handled like a hot coal out of marriage. When, when there is always deep and dark and horrible heartbreak because it is meant by God to be a soul-unifying, flesh-joining, covenantal consummation of the deepest kind of union. That's what we're seeing here. He's saying, you're my friend, you're my bride, you have stolen my heart with one look from your eyes, one look at the jewels on your necklace. Now look at verse 10. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine and the fragrance of your oils than any spice? Now, from 11 to 16, verse 11 to verse 16, basically, we get this garden theme. We started at the wedding with all of these royal themes. Now we get into the let's go back to a honeymoon suite phase of the night, and there's all these garden themes. I'll just read all the compliments that he gives, and what you'll notice is a whole lot of fertile, beautiful, life-giving, fruitful kind of themes. Uh, Verse 11. Your lips drip nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garment is like the fragrance of Lebanon. A garden locked is my sister, my bride. 
a spring locked, a fountain sealed. Your shoots are an orchid of pomegranates with all choicest fruits, henna with nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with all trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes, with all choice spices, a garden fountain, a well of living water, and flowing streams from Lebanon. He's saying you are, he's not listing body parts as if each body part relates to a tree or things like that. He's just saying to be in love with you and to enjoy your physical embrace is like I've finally taken a hold of the garden vineyard of the king that I was promised. And, and I, 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 I waited and I earned it and I, I did my time, but now I've been welcomed into the garden and I just get to enjoy it. I get to take a dip in the fountain. I get to eat when I'm hungry. I get to enjoy its beauty. It's just me and the garden, and that is good. He says to his bride that she is like a garden, uh, where are we, verse 12, a garden locked, a spring locked, a fountain sealed. Here's the imagery. He's saying there is such intense sexual beauty in you, but the only person that gets to enjoy it is me. And not me just any time, but only me once I'm your husband. This is a picture of both modesty and generosity in the sexual relationship between a husband and a wife, that before marriage, he's saying, you are like this, you're a huge garden with massive sandstone bricks all around it, no windows, I couldn't sneak peek in, I was never allowed to reach over, I couldn't, I couldn't bury under, I just had to wait my time until you were lawfully, legally, covenantally granted to me. He says, I knew there was beauty in there, but I couldn't see it. This is the modesty. It's not beauty for just anybody. It's beauty for a husband and only a husband. People may walk past a lady and be able to tell she's very pretty, but she doesn't have, if I can say, big windows in her clothes where everything is on offer and everything is visible. He says, you're evidently beautiful, but you're locked. And in you, there's this life-giving fountain, but not just anybody can drive past and take a swig of the fountain and take some of the spring. Here's what one of the commentators on this text says. A garden in the ancient world was a place of privilege, leisure, and intimacy. Kings and rich people created walled or hedged areas planted with beautiful, aromatic plants that were carefully irrigated to provide a lush retreat from the stresses and pleasures of everyday life. Such gardens were not open to all, but would be locked so that they could be preserved for the private use of the owner alone. Likewise, the fountain is only productive for watering the garden when its limited resources are not freely distributed to all. It was sealed to save its precious water until the right time when it could bring fruitful abundance. She doesn't open up the lock of the gate to just any guy who's, who's got a good, 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 good way with words, who's got some, some riz about him, or a guy who paid for an expensive date, or, or much less who's simply a follower of her on social media and so can see everything she posts. It's not like that. She's this beautiful, gorgeous, but walled garden that, when the time is right, becomes free and open to her husband. This does go back and forth, but mostly this is a female part because women are made beautiful, men are made 
sweaty, right? <laughs> Women are the beautiful ones. Women are the ones who want the attention, and rightfully so, and that can get easily twisted. So, yes, a husband has to keep himself for the bride as well. Absolutely must be said. But, but usually it is not the husband being uh, immodest in his body before marriage, and it is usually not the husband who is being very conservative in his sexual advances in marriage. So here's what we see. That she is very guarded to everybody, generous with her husband. Locked to everybody, but luscious with her husband. She's very open back and forth to each other. So that she says, look at what um, she says in verse 16. I'm going to read it really quickly and make no comment. Awake, O north wind, and come, O south wind. Blow upon my garden. Let, it, let its spices flow. Let my beloved come into his garden and eat its choicest fruits. She's saying, the whole garden's open for you, baby. Just close the door behind you. It's for you and me, and there's plenty on offer. And he says, amen, hallelujah. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. I came to the garden. My, now he's married. He, it's not her garden. It's not her vineyard. It's his garden. It's his vineyard. 1 Corinthians 7 says this. It's not her body anymore, and it's not your body anymore. You own each other's bodies and have authority over it. I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gathered my myrrh with my spice. I ate the honey, my honeycomb with my honey. I drank my wine with my milk. And then the whole chorus, this is the, the jumping into the Mustang to drive off to the honey suite, and the whole wedding congregation is together, and they say in verse the last half of verse 1, Eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. And they send them off to their beautiful honeymoon and enjoyment. This is the, the beauty of marriage that any, any fair-minded, uh, a stable person will say, I want that. I want that for my kids. I want that for my friends. I want that for my brothers and sisters. I don't care if they get it before me. I want it really soon, but I'll wait for God's blessing in it. Marriage and therefore weddings are beautiful scenes. We see this in Scripture. Psalm 45 is a, is a royal wedding scene that echoes many themes of Song of Solomon and in the New Testament is specifically applied to Christ the King. We see this in Ephesians 5, that the reason, right, the reason that before the gospel was ever uh, 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 given, you would have been saying, there is nothing in the world better than marriage. There's no event better than your wedding. And that'd be true. But since the gospel has been accomplished and Jesus has come, now Paul says, the best day in your life is just a shimmering of a piece of glitter compared to the best day in all of history. Your, your wedding will be the best day in your life, but the day when Jesus comes back, when he comes over the mountains of history, when he rides with all of his angels and his glorious uh, servants to come back for his people, his bride, Paul says, that is going to be the most glorious day in history. He says, that's why God has endued and designed and interwoven so much glory and so much of the, the deep longings into marriage and beauty and romance into weddings because it's supposed to be a, a mirror that reflects us back to the glories of Jesus as he is revealed for his church. This is why we love weddings. This is why we love marriage because God designed it to be so. And, and in the, the gospel we see... What in Song of Solomon's is merely an ideal. There's no woman who genuinely has no flaw. Sorry, ladies, a new married husband, she has something. You might haven't found it yet, she's got a flaw or two. There's no garden, it's actually almost a, an agriculture impossibility, that has all of those things that the song spoke about. 
There's no perfect wedding, no perfect body, no perfect person, but there is a perfect marriage. And it's built on perfect promises with a perfect husband towards very imperfect sinners who make up the bride. And this is the the picture of the gospel, is that just as Solomon came to the poor Shulamite woman and said, you're poor, I'm rich. I will pay for everything and give my everything to you. So Jesus, being God, became man and said to his bride, the church, anybody who believes in him, you are poor. You have nothing to offer. You have nothing that can earn for you an eternal, glorious life to come. I will pay for everything. Though I was rich, I became poor in order to win you. Where, where the, the dirty, filthy Shulamite uh, uh, farmer girl says, I'm dirty. I, I can't come to a wedding looking like this. And Solomon gives to her a beautiful veil and buys for her a wonderful dress. So Jesus comes into our existence and where we are vile and covered in muck and mire and clay and dirt and sin, Jesus sheds his blood to cleanse us entirely and lives a righteous life to be able to clothe us with the robe of his beauty, the, the fresh white robes of the righteousness of Jesus. And that's what we're presented to God in. So that genuinely and covenantally, in Jesus, our soul's husband, God can look at us and say, you are altogether beautiful, and I see no flaw in you. This is what God does in the gospel for all who believe. Your sins forgiven, your soul renewed, wrapped up into an inheritance from God given to his son, granted to us. This is the promise of the gospel. Believe in it and be saved. Let's pray. God, you are such a gracious God that to fallen man, you yet still gave this wonderful gift of marriage. You allow us to have this taste of heaven, genuinely, this taste of glory in wedding and in romance and in the, the celebration of a covenantal union and the joining of one flesh to another. But Lord God, how, how short-sighted we would be if we saw in marriage only a fleshly or, or human enjoyment and, and procreation. Father God, we are thankful that in, the mar- in, in marriage, in the covenant of marriage, we can see the glories of the gospel, that you have given yourself for us, that you spared no expense in order to secure us and bring us safely to an eternal kingdom. We are thankful, Lord God, that you have, in all of your grace, loved us with a love that is stronger than death, in order to bring us through forgiveness into your eternal world. I just pray that those who, who hear this and have been coming, maybe it's their first night here, their first night ever hearing the message of Jesus, but for those who hear but are not yet born again, that you would give your spirit to, to take them out of their experience of sin and to take them out of the bondage of, of the devil and, and death and give them an inheritance with Jesus Christ. Would you clean their consciences because Jesus made full atonement? Lord God, would you grow your church to the glory of your own name? We pray all of this in the name of your son, our husband. And everybody said, amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.